Hey, Kevin here, and we are currently hard at work getting together the next Philly stories to share on your podcast feed this fall. In the meantime, we are revisiting some of the most popular episodes of Philly Who from its first three years. Today is one of by far the most popular episodes of Philly Who that we shared. And actually, we originally shared this story as two separate episodes. Today, we've brought those two episodes together, edited them a little bit for time, and we are resharing them now for your enjoyment. And that, of course, is the story of Tony Luke Jr., who was a high school dropout and a Hollywood hopeful and eventually would become cheesesteak royalty here in Philly. This story has some incredible ups and downs, like unbelievable. This man has lived so many lives. And so I hope you enjoy the retelling of the many lives of Tony Luke Jr. right here and now on Philly Who. It's amazing. I, I always said that I, I didn't live a life. I lived lives. And in every life, I changed. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm sitting down with Tony Luke Jr., in the early 90s, Tony, his brother, and his father built and opened a small sandwich shop in South Philly. Pretty soon, everyone was talking about Tony Luke's. Philly Magazine voted us not only the best cheesesteak in Philly, but the best roast pork sandwich in Philly. Tony Luke's would turn into a household name, and Tony Luke Jr. would become the face of the franchise, starring in TV and radio commercials and even getting his own show on Spike TV. But before his father even had the thought to build a sandwich shop, Tony Luke Jr.'s story had already taken several shapes. From being a rough-and-tumble South Philly kid... I grew up in a 10 by 10 block radius. Anyone out of that 10 by 10 block was not my friend. To a budding Hollywood movie star rubbing shoulders with the cast of Rocky... He's literally standing in the elevator and I go, Mr. Stallone, my name's Tony Sidonio. How do I get in your next picture? And literally, like a film, as the doors close, he goes... You audition like everybody else. To scoring a record deal as the crooner of an R&B band. And he says, and who are you again? What do you play? And I'm like, I'm the lead singer. And he went, no, lead singer's black. I'm like, no, he's Italian. The preamble of Tony Luke Jr.'s story to being the face of the Philly cheesesteak is part one of this two-part episode of Philly Who. And I say this with every fiber of my being. Creative and performing arts literally saved my life. Just a heads up, there is some cursing in this episode. All right, buckle up, because Tony Luke Jr.'s Philly story is a doozy. You heard it here first. There will be a movie made about this man. Now, we don't even get to the founding of Tony Luke's, the cheesesteak franchise, until part two. In that episode, you'll hear how a small sandwich shop on a random corner in South Philly that didn't even sell cheesesteaks when it first opened became the Philly cheesesteak sensation of the 90s. Tony Luke Jr. would take the momentum of a few press pieces and parlay it into viral TV commercials, multiple franchise locations, and the life of a TV and food celebrity. But the highest of highs would soon become the lowest of lows. Tony's family would have a falling out about the direction of the franchise, which would be followed by a devastating lawsuit, the end of Tony's TV show, and the heart-wrenching death of his son, 
Tony Lucidonio III. Now, that's all covered in part two, and I know it sounds super intriguing, but trust me, part one is just as wild. Before Tony was made famous through silly TV commercials, crazy radio ads, and really excelling at viral marketing before it was even a thing, he had a couple of really close runs at conventional stardom. You see, Tony was born to be a performer, and he's got talent. His music career got to the point where one day he was working on a song in the same LA recording studio as Michael Jackson. He actually turned down the chance to meet him so that he could focus on his song, which today he regrets, but really shows how seriously close he came to having a big time music career. Before that, as a teenager, Tony was personally invited by a cast member of Rocky to move out to LA and take a crack at being a Hollywood actor. And earlier still, he was a member of the very first class at Kappa, the Philadelphia High School for Creative and Performing Arts. The two threads that are constant within the many lives of Tony Luke, for better or for worse, are performance and food. Eventually, he would find positive harmony between the two, but as a child, that wasn't the case. He was extremely shy and pretty overweight. As a result, in those formative years, he was picked on a lot. I was probably maybe 10 and a half. That was when you still used halves. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're like, how old are you? I'm like nine and a half, yeah, 10 yeah. and a half. <laughs> and I would sit on the step and there was a girl that would walk by every day and she would smile and wave and I would smile and wave. And next thing you know, we would, we started talking. I said, hi. And I would look forward every night to being out on the step and she would be there. And then one day I just, you know, I said, you know, I'm going to want to work up the courage. I'm going to, I'm going to ask her out. I'm going to do it. And what did we do back then? You know, you get a piece of paper and you go, you know, do you like me? Yes, no. Circle Would one. you go out with me? Yes, no. <laughs> you know, check the box. I muscled up the courage. I thought, you know what? You could do this. You could do this. And I, I gave her the paper. And she looked at it. And she smiled. And then she kind of got off the step. And her girlfriends were on the corner. And she went and she spoke with them. And I was just sitting uh, on the step and I had no idea what was going on. And she, she came back like five minutes later and I said, well, did you read the note? She said, yes. And I said, do you like me? And she said, yes. And I said, well, would you go out with me? And she said, I talked to my friends and they said that you're too fat to go out with. And I, I can still remember that it was, 47 years ago and you must have felt crushed well it, it just it, it it just was a an affirmation to all the teasing i got that that you know if you weren't if you didn't look a certain way if you didn't follow the norm of what everyone else looked like then no one wanted to be seen with you yeah and i remember running in to the house crying and my grandmother, God rest her soul. She was amazing. She made me feel better by cooking me pasta. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like, I had this issue. So I developed this very, um, abnormal relationship with food. And 
I never really ate because I was hungry. My grandmother, God bless her, I mean, she, she was always trying to do the right thing. And by no means am I suggesting that she's the cause of this. I mean, right, I'm the cause right. of this. But when I sat in front of a TV with a bowl of food, these shows would come on. I'd watch all of these shows, these comedies, these TV series, and I would be someone else. And I would look at the actors and playing the different roles. And I would, I would get lost inside the television with the food. So I related comfort. I learned how to cope with life's problems all the way into adulthood by eating and watching television because that brought back the feeling that I was, I was safe. It was comfortable. My grandmother was there and that also sparked my interest in acting. My grandmother, God bless her, supported me in everything I did. So I would run around like a lunatic and I wanted to sing and I wanted to this and I wanted to that. You know, I came out of my shell probably around 12 maybe. And I kind of went the opposite way. I was really very introverted and afraid of a lot of things. And at like 12 and 13, I just kind of flipped and I kind of came into my own and became part of what the neighborhood was. I grew up in a 10 by 10 block radius. So anyone out of that 10 by 10 block was not my friend. Where in Philly is this? What are the, like the, well, the I grew up at I grew up at 803 McClellan Street is where I grew up. So people around the neighbor, around that 10 by 10 radius knew who you were. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I never backed down from anyone. I remember I, a dear friend of mine, his name was Nick. He was a boxer and I couldn't fight at all. You know. But I was at that I don't care attitude. Right. Like I fight anyone. <laughs> and there was, he was picking on me kind of in school a little bit, but you know, he hung with the tough kids. And I remember, I'll never forget it. It was like we were in, um, like the basement, the lunchroom, and it was packed. And he said something to me, and I, I went back at him. And he's like, "Oh, you're dead." I'm like, "Well, anytime you, you know, like he wouldn't do it in school." And he's like, "You meet at literally like a movie. Yeah. We're meeting in the in the in the schoolyard, you know, at four thirty, and you better show up." And literally, the entire school, the classes were there. They showed up, and he showed up, unfortunately, <laughs> um, but so did I. And I had a really good friend of mine, Mario, and you know he was rooting me on. Come on, come on, Tom, come on, Tom. Yeah, yeah. And needless to say, he beat the shit out of me. <laughs> but no matter how hard he hit me, I refused to go down. No matter how many times he punched me and I've hit the wall, I just kept coming at him, swinging wild and... Maybe I got a punch in. I even doubted. He was just so good. There was actually one point, and I could remember vividly, where he stopped. And he just looked at me like, stop. What are like, we doing just here? Just stop. You can't win. There was a part of me that just wouldn't give up. And I would just kept going. And then just at the height of me just taking this beating and everyone's watching it. And I'm starting to feel like, yeah, just give me more. I hear, it's my mother comes running into the schoolyard. No. You know, and I'm like, well, that's the end of that great moment. And <laughs> about two hours later, I heard a knock on the door and it was Nick. And it was with all the guys that he hung with. And I came to the door and I thought, oh, here we go again. And I was ready. Like, I don't care again. 
And he said to me, you know, you got a lot of balls. He said, but you can't fight for shit. And I said, well, I tried. He goes, look, we're going to hang out. You want to come? <laughs> and they became some of my best friends. And then I knew I had to learn how to fight. And I went to P.D. Alessi's gym, which was a boxing gym. And um, it, was, it was amazing. And it built my self-confidence. And that's when I started to, to get high on crystal meth. And then the weight just shredded on me. And, you know, I was thin and I was in the gym every day. And at that point, if I was going to fight, it would have been a formidable fight with anyone. Right. That kind of led to me getting thrown out of school. Yeah. So it was, you just, you got into another fight. I got into another fight and I, I hurt this kid and um, they wanted me out. But I still wanted to do the acting thing because I've always wanted to do that. And, and so it was, it was your father who... It was my father who, who said to me, you got to go back to school. My dad, I have to be honest, I, I never saw him. He worked all the time. Yeah. The man was an amazing provider. Look, we didn't have the best of everything, but we had everything we needed. No, we didn't have new shoes, but we made sure to clean the shoes we had. No, we didn't have the best house, but it was always clean. He was a very proud man. You mm. know what I mean? He took pride in everything he did. He worked with his hands and no one ever gave him anything. And, you know, his father was not, you know, his father was uh, used his hands a lot on him and his mother. Mm. I think that, you know, being a young kid going through that kind of abuse and just being in that environment, I, I think what it did to my dad was he didn't become an abuser, but he kind of was cold. Yeah. Maybe not physically, but yeah, he but never still... said I loved you. He could be very, very distant. Yeah. So anyway, I got thrown out of Newman for fighting and I went to work. My father had a commissary for lunch trucks and, you know, orders would come in. We would load the trucks with stuff and then trailers would come in to drop off stuff and we would load it on the elevator. So it was really manual labor kind of stuff. And um, my father called me in the office. And he said to me, I just read in the paper about this new school, this, uh, I don't know, some creative and performing arts school. You want to be an actor and a singer or whatever else you want to do. He was never like, it was never his thing. My father, you know, it was like, well, go audition because you got to go back to school. You're, you're 14. You can't not be in school. You have to go back to school, go audition. Now I don't remember how many kids audition. What school was it? Uh, creative and performing arts Kappa. And they were literally auditioning for the first class wow. of the school. They actually call us the originals. Really? <laughs> yeah. So here I am in jeans and leather jacket, you know, and I'm looking to just, you know, nobody better come near me. Yeah. Now, remember, I'm out of my 10 by 10 block area. So to me, anywhere outside of that realm, it's time to fight. Like literally, that was the mentality. Wow. And here I go to this audition and... There's Irish and blacks and Puerto Ricans and Jewish people and Asian people. Like, I'm like, I, I, this is really new to me. And I had to audition. So I, I auditioned for drama and music as the minor. Okay. And I got up there, I'll never forget, and I sang Always and Forever, acapella. And then it was time for the drama audition. And I remember distinctly how I got in the school. They put us all on stage and they said, 
I want everyone to pick an animal. Be that animal. So I'm like, well, the only animal I know, I don't know shit. I know dogs. People are being sheeps and cat. I'm thinking, where do you see a sheep at? <laughs> you live in the city. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm a dog. So I'm like, I'm in my head. I'm like, really? I got to be a dog? So I literally get on all fours and I just start barking, thinking, feeling like an, an idiot, you know, because if my neighborhood guys could see me, I'd be like shot. Uh, yeah. So if I figure if I want to be a dog, I'm going to be a dog. And I start barking. Now we were on a stage and I remember jumping off the stage and there was this amazing woman named Miss Daniels. And I jumped off the stage, ran up to her and stared at her and she looked at me and I did what dogs do. And I literally shoved my head between her knees, between her knees, not her thighs, Yeah, yeah. between her knees and was like acting like a dog. And she jumped off the chair laughing, hysterical, like she couldn't stop laughing that this kid just jumped off the stage and put his head between my knees like a dog yeah. when it meets another, you know what I mean? And then everyone started to laugh. And I remember leaving and I thought either I will never be called because <laughs> I'm just too ridiculous or that was so different yeah. that I'll get in. Now, well, now I would have been arrested, yeah, charged with every conceivable. But back then, no one thought that like there was no malice. There was nothing sexual about what i was doing there was nothing pervert like it was it was a, it was a joke it was a, just a being dog. ridiculous yeah it was it was everyone was ridiculous and she didn't take it any other way than he's crazy like this is but it sounds like you had the same mentality it's like either all right they're gonna you know i mean they're gonna be i mean they're gonna win or they're gonna kill me like, right. you know figuratively and either way whatever let's just figure this out and i remember about two months later i got a letter in that i was accepted to drama and to music how how did you react when you saw that letter? I couldn't believe it. And I will tell you this. And I say this with every fiber of my being. Creative and performing arts literally saved my life. My views on everything changed. I actually wished that everyone from the neighborhood could have gone. Because then they could have really seen that it's a different world beyond the 10 by 10 block. I don't think anyone in this school was ever introduced to anyone like me. My drama teacher used to call me Rock, like Rocky, like Rock. And I was popular in high school, like which was such an opposite of grade school because I was so unpopular in grade school. But if, if you ask me, the high school days were some of the greatest days I've ever had. I mean, I just, I learned so much and, you know, dance and I learned to appreciate dance more because I had to take ballet. Right. Now, this is an Italian kid from South Philly, you know, 1978, taking ballet class. You know, I never forget coming home and my father's like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, well, I'm supposed to wear it. It's a dance skin. You ain't wearing a dance skin. I don't care what school you go to. <laughs> I'll kill you not wearing a dance. I'm like, I got to wear the dance. You ain't wearing a dance skin. So I'm picturing like you at this time, like I'm picturing like Danny from Greece, like, yeah. you know, uh, the Fonz, the Rocky Balboa. So you, they called you rock. Now I, I read that you actually found your way into a cast party for Rocky too. Oh, you're going to love this story. Okay. <laughs> so 
they're having this, I think it was at the Barclay Prime or was on somewhere on Rittenhouse Square. Now, is Square. this still while you were in high school? Yeah, I'm in high school now. So I have a, a, a really great friend who was very talented. His name was uh, Ralph Satterthwaite. And we're in school, and I find out that they're having a luncheon for Rocky Two. Now, I want to be in Rocky Three, yeah. So I go to Ralph, and I said to him, listen, we're cutting school today. He's like, we're not cutting school. I'm like, we're cutting school. There's a luncheon. We're going to go. We're going to meet Sylvester Stallone. I'm going to get in his movie. I'm like, you want to come? You don't want to come. He's like, Are you, uh, what? I'm like, let's go. Come on. Follow me. <laughs> so we leave. And I remember walking in and there's the desk. Now I tell Ralph before we go in, don't say anything. Just let me do all the talking and you just nod. So now remember, I'm 17, 16, 17, whatever yeah. year it was, whatever Rocky II came so I walk in, I go to the front there, I go, how you doing? She's like, good. I'm like, uh, I'm here for the press passes. The woman said, excuse me? The press pass for the Rocky II luncheon, me and Ralph Satisway, press, we're press. And she said, excuse me, kid. <laughs> I'm like, first of all, don't call me, I'll never forget, I'm like, I'm not a kid. Do you ever hear Creative and Performing Arts, the high school right here? Yeah, well, we're the journalists for the school. Drama's our major. We're doing a story about Rocky II. Press passes were supposed to be left here for us. I'm just here to pick them up. It's, who did you speak to? I don't, re I don't you know, remember a name. I don't. Hold on. So now I know everyone involved. in Because like, I was a real driver. Like who the producer. Like everything. Hold on. She gets on the phone. She goes, here. I'm like, hello. It's like, who is this? The guy says, says it's, it's Tony Lucidonio. Who are you? Who are you? He goes, I'm Erwin Winkler. Who are you? I'm the producer of the film. He's the producer. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, Mr. Winkler. I said, I called your office. I'm um, with Creative Performing Arts, and we were doing a story on Rocky II, and they were supposed to leave press pass. He goes, what office did you call? So now I got to think fast. Uh -oh. Now, I'm a street kid, so I'm quick. He's an act, like he's a producer. If he's got an office that's only in two places, New York or California. And if, if anything, he's in L.A. more than he's in New York. So I go, I called in New York. I don't remember who I spoke. I put the woman back on the phone. Put some woman back. Now, you calculated all of that just on the fly. And on the fly. <laughs> on the, well, you had to. When you're on the street, yeah. you get into a situation. Be on your feet. You got to talk your way out of it. You better be quick or you're dead. So Ralph can't believe it. She gives me these two press passes. So he's, I'm like, what floor? And she tells us what floor. We go up, we get off the elevator, I got the press pass, and now I got an attitude of a walk, which we used to call a strut back in the 70s. So I'm strutting in, <laughs> and Ralph's next to me, and we get to the front, and there's a little short Italian guard, like security guard. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. where are you going? And I already hear the South Philly accent. Where are you going? I'm like, press, press my ass. Where are you going? I said, can you read? It says press. I don't care what it says. I don't know how you got up here. I know you don't belong here. You're going to turn your ass around. You're going to go back. I'm like, listen to me, cheap cop. I said, you don't tell me what to do. I got to press. Now I'm getting into this huge argument, literally. And this guy walks over and he's thin. He's in a three-piece suit. He goes, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on? I'm like, this 
security guard thinks he's some big cop and he's trying to tell me I can't come in and he's lucky I don't smack him in the face. And this guy just starts laughing. And he's like, he's all right, he's all right, he's all right. They're, they're with me. He's all right, they're with me. And he goes, all right. Now, I don't know who the guy is. He goes, come with me. You sit at my table. I'm like, all right. Now, he takes me to this table and it's away from all the other tables. And I'm thinking in my head, I want to be here. Yeah. I want to be with all the people. It, it's a completely, this long table, it's separate. But I figured, you know what, I'm in here. So they, he goes, what are you doing? He goes, tell me the truth. How'd you get in here? So I tell him the whole story. And Irwin he told the truth. The whole story. I tell yeah. him Erwin Winkler, because the guy looked cool as shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Erwin Winkler, I told him, I called him New York. That He didn't know anything. I pulled it over on him. And then I go downstairs, Ralph comes in, I cut school, and he can't get enough of me telling him the story. He is just laughing hysterically. So now I'm, I'm looking at Ralph, I'm like, what do you think? Fruit cups coming, you know, like we're going to have lunch. Now I look, and here comes uh, Car Weathers, Apollo Creed. I'm like, there, there, I'm looking at Ralph, there he is. Like, where's he sitting? Like, how far? Like, you know, because we're really, we're not close. Yeah. I mean, we're close, but we're separate. Right, yeah. And I'm like, he's coming, he's coming, coming closer. He's like, and then he comes to the table and he sits on the other side of me. And I'm like, what the hell's like, what are we like? I can't believe this now. And he goes, and I go, how you doing? And the guy goes, oh, Carl Weather goes, Tony Lucidonio is from South Philly. And he goes, this is Ralph Satterthwaite from Westwood. They're both from Kappa, Craven. He goes, nice to meet you. And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm at the table. <laughs> Who is this guy? Like, who is this guy? Because yeah. I don't recognize him, and he's super thin. You and still don't know who the guy who brought you no in is. no clue who he is. And I'm, you know, I've seen Rocky 800 times. You know, you live in South Philly, you saw it a million Of course. Times. Next thing you know, here comes Talia Shire. And she sits at the table, and he's in. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? And I look, and I go, excuse me. I go, who are you? Who are you? And he goes, who me? Go, yeah, who are you? I'm like, that you're, you're, he goes, I'm in the movie. I'm like, I'm sorry, because the guy, you know, I, I saw the movie a million times. Are you new in like two? And he goes, no. He goes, you honestly don't know who I am? Like, I don't, I don't know who you are. And he goes, uh, I'm Burt Young. I play Paulie. I'm like, no, Bert's fat. He goes, I lost a ton of weight because he's super skinny in Rocky too. Right. I didn't recognize him because he lost all the weight. He looked completely different. And it was Bert Young. And I'm like, oh, my God. Now, here comes. So this was the best. He goes, oh. He goes, hold on, Tony. Hold on. <laughs> he goes, and he, he waves the guys coming over. He goes, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. He goes, Tony Irwin Winkler. Say hi to Irwin because I just told him the whole story. <laughs> I'm like, Mr. Winkler, how are you? He goes, why do I know that name? Did I just talk to you on the phone? I'm like, yeah, I really appreciate the press passes. <laughs> that now Bird is laughing hysterical because he's in on the joke. No one. So we had lunch, and here comes Stallone. And he sits like two seats down. And they're answering questions. And I'm like, and everyone wants to know who the hell are we? Yeah, yeah. You're at the table. Trying, with the we're at the table. So now people are like, who, who the hell are those two guys? <laughs> and... The thing gets done, and Bert goes, you know, kid, you remind me a lot of me. He goes, I like you. You come out to L.A. I'll take care of you. Uh, here's my personal number. Wow. 
He was awesome. And he said, you, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, thanks. I got to see Stallone. Yeah, yeah. Like, right. Like, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah I got to yeah. get in the movie. I need to talk to Sylvester Stallone. He starts leaving. I'm trying to get him, pressed all over him. Finally, finally gets in the elevator. He's literally standing in the elevator, and I go, Mr. Stallone, my name is Tony Lucidonio. How do I get in your next picture? And I'll never forget it. And literally, like a film, as the doors close, and he goes, you auditioned like everybody else. <laughs> and the doors closed. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. After all that. <laughs> I was like, all of that. Oh, my God. At that point, you probably should have like actually written an article for the newspaper or whatever. No, I didn't know. I couldn't even speak back then. I can barely speak English now. Back then, it was even worse. Yeah. And, um, about two to three months prior to graduating, I figure, yeah, I don't want to be in school anymore. Now, I'm talking two to three months. You're that close. And I go, I'm going to go to L.A. Burt Young gave me his info. I'm going to L.A. I'm going to be a movie star. I want to be a star. When I, got, I got Burt Young. Yeah, you're set. I'm going. I'm 17. I had a, an orange Volkswagen. I sold it. I'm at the airport. My girl I was with from 13. She's crying. My mother's crying. I'm like, I'm moving to L.A. Just like that. You're Said, like, I'm you know what? Never mind. I'm out. Going. Not finishing school. I'm going to L.A. You break up with the girlfriend? Pa no, well, yeah. Wow. So I have, like, I got a pocket full of cash. Because I sold my car, my father gave me some money. Like, I literally got a wad yeah. of cash. So, here I am in L.A. I'm there a couple weeks. I go see Burt Young. Now, I don't know anything. I figure, you know, so, Burt sends you to a casting agent. So, Burt, he picked up. Oh, he did. He picked up. I went to his office. So, I go to the casting agent. Now, remember, I'm from South Philly. I have no clue. Right, yeah. Now, where I come from, if someone sends you somewhere, it's taken care of. If I go, yo, you go see this guy, then you're good. Well, it doesn't work like that. I don't know this. So I go to this actual conversation I had with a casting agent. So I go and I go, how you doing? She's like, yes, can I help me? I'm like, you know, Burt Young, the actor, Burt Young. Yeah, yeah, he called me. He said you were coming. You have a headshot. Here you go. She's, thank you. And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, well, when, you know, when do I work? She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I just gave my head shot. What movie am I going to? <laughs> and she goes, what do you mean movie you're going to? I'm like, look, you're not understanding. Bert called. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, are you hearing, are you feeling, right, you, right. you getting it? He called. Yeah, I know. I said, well, when am I going to get a job? She said, you see all those file cabinets behind me? They're filled with thousands of headshots." I'm like, no, no, we're not, you're not understanding me. She goes, no, you're not understanding me. So now I'm pissed. I call Bert. He's on a set doing a movie. Uh, hold on. He says, he's, he's on break. Give me a minute. And I, he gets on the phone. Now, we didn't have cell phones back then. I'm literally calling from a payphone. He's like, Tony, did you go see the gig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, all right, good. I'm like, well, well, I'm not good. Where's the gig? Like, she didn't even know. Like, he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, she, you, you called her. I should be heading to a movie now. He goes, Tony, it's a slower process. Just relax. Take it easy. Yeah, yeah. Go to my office. So I had an office on Wilshire Boulevard. I walk in, and a woman who I was on the phone with, before I went to L.A., her name was Temi Rosenthal. To this day, I'm still in contact with Temi. Wow. I love her. She's an amazing, amazing woman. And I walked in, she said, now I can finally put a face 
to that voice, she goes. And I said, ah. and we're talking. I said, Bert's going to tell. And we just hit it off like we knew each other for 100 yeah. years. Now, she was older than me by probably 10 years, maybe. And there was a blonde in the office. Beautiful. And I go, I'm going to talk to her. She said, no, 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 Tony, leave her alone. I'm like, I just want to go talk to the girl. She's like, no, no, stay away from her. Leave her alone. I'm like, I'm just talking to the girl, Tammy. Don't make a big deal out of it. She's talking to her. So I walk in. I, I sit down next to the girl and I say, hey, how you doing? Tony Lustonio. She goes, hi, hi. She said, so what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm friends with Bert. Yeah. I said, no, I'm an actor. I'm going to do. I said, but I don't really know L.A. Like, I haven't. She's like, you don't know? I was like, no. I said, I don't really know anyone. I would love to have someone maybe. You don't know anyone that might be able to take me around L.A., show me something. She's like, well, I'll take you. And I'm like, well, that would be awesome. And I see Tammy looking at me with death. <laughs> <laughs> so we we go out. Like, we we just, we do, um, you know, it takes me around, shows me a couple things. Never touched her. Never was inappropriate with her at all. This is the truth. I go back to my hotel. My phone rings. I'm literally in my motel room. My phone rings. I pick it up. And I'm like, hello? And I hear, is this Tony? And I'm like, yeah. You listen to me and you listen good. You go near my effing sister again. I will bust your effing. I will have your legs chopped off, thrown in the Pacific Ocean. You understand me? And, my, and whoa, 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 I go, first of all, don't talk to me like that. Because I don't know who you are. Who the hell are you? And he goes, it's Jimmy Khan. I'm like, well, I don't know no Jimmy Khan. So I don't know your sister. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know any of this shit. And don't threaten me. I don't like it. He's like, I'm not kidding. I'm not threatening you. I'm telling you. I will, I will literally have you thrown in an ocean. And he's going to. And I said, well, you know where I'm at. You called my hotel room, tough guy. Don't act like, don't try to use my sister to get to me. And I'm like, again, why would I want to get to you? Because I don't even know who the hell you are. It's Jimmy Khan. And I'm like, I don't know no Jimmy Khan. So stop, you know, and we're fighting. And he's like, it's James Khan. And literally, literally in an instant, I went, oh my, dude, I'm a huge fan. Like literally, <laughs> that's how freaking mental I was. And I'm like, oh, I didn't get, I didn't put a two, two together. And he's like, stay away from, I'm like, listen, calm down. I didn't do anything with your sister. He kind of calmed down. Later in life, I found out that he literally, truly could have had my legs chopped right, off. Right. And it was so cool because I, I met his sister again. And, I, you know, I laughed about it. And she had him sign a picture to my mom. Oh, that's great. You know, which is kind of yeah, cool. That's so and, funny. And then I got, I got into an argument with Bert. And it didn't work out, and I kind of was asked to leave Los Angeles. <laughs> and the city of Los Angeles asked you to leave. <laughs> asked me to leave, just like Bishop Newman right. asked me to leave. I, I was up. noticing a pattern, <laughs> yeah. you know. So first it was, you know, a school, then a then a, a whole city, city, city and of then cities. Yeah. Next it'll be the state, and then right. finally the country <laughs> will throw me. And eventually, this is planet Earth. Can I yeah. ask you to leave? <laughs> Please get off the planet. <laughs> When I came back, you came back to Philly. I came back to Philly, and I met with Franny, who was my ex-wife now, and I was still seventeen. And I asked her to marry me, and we weren't allowed to get married because we were too young. So we eloped, and we went to Elkton, Maryland. Wow! And got married by a judge, and I started work, 
Never graduated school. Where'd you work? I worked with my dad. Okay, so you worked at the the commissary. The commissary, which was for lunch trucks. And and then she got pregnant. And um, she gave birth at 18. I would just... Uh, I just turned 19 and um, my son Tony was born and then um, three years later my son Michael was born and then four years later my son Joe was born so when I was 26 I already had three children Wow! and working all the time two jobs worked for Frankie border delivering pizzas making pizzas I worked the oven I loved working the oven and I kind of Kind of forgot the entertainment industry. Yeah, so it sounds like for a solid decade, you just kind of worked and 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 started raising your kids. And well, yeah, and then, but that's not 100% true because I think in 84, when Michael was born, before Joe was born, I started doing the music. Okay. I got into music. I, I felt like I had, um, you know, I just, I felt it. Like I really felt the music. And I didn't know anything about theory. I knew that I could look at a piano and I could play sounds. And I would string those sounds together into a song. And I would always hear melody lines in my head and lyrics. And I found that I was able to write music without literally knowing anything about music. Wow. So I wrote my first song and I had no musicians to play it. So I remember walking through Center City. Someone told me to go to a place called New Power Conservatory of Music. And I heard the sax player playing. And I remember I walked up the steps because this is the dumb crap that I do. I remember walked in, walked past everyone, literally opened up the door to where this kid was playing in the conservatory. Like, this is where he's learning. And I go, how you doing? And he goes, excuse me? I'm like, Tony Lucidonio, who are you? And he goes, Max Weissman. I'm like, Max, you can play that sax. I'm like, look, I'm a songwriter. I'm a singer. I want you in my band. So I need you to record a track for me. Literally, that's what I that was it. And he looked at me like I had 10 heads. <laughs> and, and he looked at me and he was like, all right. I'm like, we got to get the rest of the band together, but don't worry about it. Then I met Don Rogers, who played drums, and Diane Thompson, who is an amazing uh, keyboard player, and Cheryl McCallis. And I just put this whole band together, and we called ourselves Off the Streets. Yeah. Oh, cool. And we went in and, and we just, you know, started doing some little four track recording and I was introduced to a, um, a gentleman named Philip Calloway and Philip was a manager, a music manager. Yeah. And he represented a group called Tony, Tony and Tone at the time. <laughs> I remember hearing their demo before they were even signed through Philip and I wanted, you know, I wanted a deal. Like I want, I want, you know, I thought I want to be a singer. This is what I want to do. I want to make music. And I get picked up by A&M Records. So I'm a young kid. I figure, well, now I made it. So they fly me and um, Mike Tyler, who was the guitar player for me, to Los Angeles. <clears throat> first, not the first time, it was the second time. You're back. I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. And I call Tammy. She knows I'm coming. And I don't want to see Bert because I think he's mad at me because we had an argument prior. But like an idiot, I'm thinking he actually remembers. Right, that, yeah, you know, yeah. He remembers nothing, you know. So anyway, go back. I'm in the studio, and I remember walking in. The a guy was there, 
And I remember him looking at me because he all he did was heard he heard music. Yeah. And he came back to me and he says, uh, "And who are you again with the band? Who, who, who do you, what do you play?" And I'm like, "I'm the I'm the lead singer." Yeah. And he went, "No, no, no, lead singer's black." I'm like, "No, no, he's Italian." <laughs> I'll never forget that. I'm like, yeah. he's Italian. Yeah, yeah. He's like, you're the lead singer. I'm like, I'm the lead singer. Yeah. And he kind of looked at me like, now, because this was different back then. Right. It was like. And you were doing like R&B music. I was right? doing heavy R&B stuff, you know, and the band was was inter, interracial. To me, it was always just about the music. And I remember me and Mike cut the whole album at A&M. And there is one regret I have. I do have one regret. I was in Studio B cutting the tracks and I was so into it. Like I was just focused into it. And um, they said to me, listen, you want to come next door? Michael Jackson's recording in Studio A. Do you want to meet Michael? And you can hang a little bit. And I literally said, I'm bit like I'm doing the tracks. I'm bit. <laughs> I can't. I'm busy. Like I was so focused on my music that now I said, I, I can't believe I had a chance to meet Michael Jackson and I said, no, I'm too busy yeah. writing. <laughs> yeah. But as a writer, you're in a flow. Right. You don't want to lose it. Right, right, right. My one regret. Well, anyway, we finished the album. And I remember going in to the office. And I said, hey, guys, did you hear the, the demo? Did you hear the album? And they said, yeah. And it's really good. And I said, well, I, I appreciate it. And they said, um, well, we have a problem. I'm like, what's the problem? He said, look, if I'm going to be honest, we don't know what to do with you. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, look, we can't market you as a black artist because you're not black. And I can't market you as a white artist because you don't do rock. You do R&B. He said, and it's an great interracial group. And I, our, the PR, we don't know what to do. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean you know what to do? I'm like, you market as an R&B track. Yeah. Yeah, but you're white. And I said, well, what does that mean? They were like, you know, we're not going to release it. And I was devastated. Really, and, and hurt. But then as soon as I, they dropped me, uh, Greg Peck from Island Records uh, wanted me. Yeah. So I was excited, and I remember going to to Greg and I told him and Island back then primarily a black label and I had just realized that I'm in I'm like I'm doing music I'm I'm, I'm the curve hasn't come yet what's going to be different with I you know what I mean with Island and God bless him you know and Greg was like because um, I'm going to fight for you I'm going to fight for you and we went to K-Gem Studios and we recorded. We redid some new tracks. Yeah. And um, it came down between me and an artist then called Miles J. He was very much like a Teddy Pendergrass okay. clone almost, like he sounded. And I didn't get it. And, you know, my first reaction was, again, because the whole, you know, and he's like, look, Tony. He said, I went in and I fought for you. But he gave me a real education. And um, he said to me, do I feel bad that you didn't get it? Yeah. Do I think you should have gotten it? Yeah. Do you want me to feel bad that 
maybe the fact that you were white doing R&B music might have been a factor in whether they went with Miles right. or you. I'm not going to say yes or no. Right. But if you think I'm going to feel bad that maybe you didn't get it because of your skin color. He said, because if you want me to re-educate you, I will. He said, let's go back to the to the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s right. when all these amazing black artists, uh, you know, white groups were covering their music. They mm -hmm. weren't getting paid anything. He said, so... Do I think you should have got it? Yes. Do I feel bad that maybe this time it didn't work out the way you wanted it to or the way it has been working out for the last 50 years? No, I don't feel bad about that. And I remember being angry as a kid thinking it's supposed to be about the music. Yeah. Just very oblivious to the fact that all the other artists that came before me, it was about the music for them too, but because of their skin color or whatever political reason was they didn't get it or they were overlooked or it was yeah. given to someone else. And it was kind of like, Hmm, you know, like, you know, Greg was like, how's that taste? Yeah. You know, what I mean? yeah. That little, you know and, and so you, you didn't have that sort of <clears throat> perspective of that at the time. Is that something that you know? Because of... I just kept saying to myself, it should be about the music and only about the music. And as later on in life, as I grew as a person, yeah as life experiences started to show me more and more and I started witnessing things on my own, I realized that I should have been incredibly grateful that I was given an opportunity to do something that hadn't really been done or having people in the music industry have that kind of confidence in me to go and push for me. Right, and that you even like got to that. that point. And yeah, to get, right, exactly. I was so angry, I quit music. Wow, you're like, I'm done. I'm done. I said, because it's politics and it's not about the music. And I quit. And I remember just stopping. What at that point did you do? I went back to work. And you were just working stiff? Yeah, I was working f with my dad with the lunch trucks. I hated it. Like, I really hated it because I just wanted to do music. And I remember literally sometimes going into work and just wanting to die. And then I remember in 1992, I had a restaurant called Lucidonio's on 7th and Federal. And I loved to cook and I had learned to cook. You know, my father had a restaurant called Rigatoni's and I had learned from, I learned how to cook from my dad. Some from my mom and my grandmother, but a lot from my dad. Because my dad used to make roast pork and roast beef for parties and people would love it. They would love his roast pork and roast beef. And my father in 90, 91, called me because he had a commissary for the lunch trucks. He was working with my brother and they had just sold it. And he said to me, why don't we do something as a family? And I found this piece of property. And I think I want to put a sandwich shop on there. And we should do that. So he drove around and there was a piece, there was an old doggy diner, piece of ground on Oregon Avenue. Now remember, people look at that spot now and they go, oh my God, it's the greatest spot. There was nothing there. When he found that spot, no one would put a business there. There were train tracks coming across. There was the bridge, you know, under 95. There was a, a Wendy's across the street. There was nothing there. It was industrial. It was for trucks. It was, no one would do it. Right. Now, he had no money, my father. He had sold the business. They gave him a few dollars down. 
and he went to to get the property. But no one knew who owned it. No one. Oh, so he just drove by and said, I want that. And he couldn't find any records of who owned it. According to the records, the owner died. So no one, you know, no one knew or something. Now, I'm not 100%. Yeah, sure. Because I'm not my dad. He lived that. I didn't. So I'm going off memory, and I it could be skewed. Sure. So yeah. well, anyway, he's talking to a friend of his, and he's talking about wanting to get that property. And the guy that he's talking to goes, oh, yeah, I know who owns that property. The guy died. His son has it. And he's like, do you know where the, where the son lives? And he's like, yeah. So my father went over with no money, literally no money. And he said, look, the property's just sitting there. I'd like to buy it. I'd like to give you X amount down and then pay you so much a month. We could write up some kind of a contract. And the kid was like, well, I'm not doing nothing with it. And he got, he got the ground. Wow. Well, now we have to build it. Well, there's no money. Now, let me tell you something. You want me to go in your refrigerator and take out food and make you a dinner? I don't care what you got. I'll find something and put it together. You want me to write you a song? Do it. Want me to serenade you? Do it. You have acting you want me to do? Do it. The only thing I know about tools is what they look like. <laughs> Most names I don't even know. Yeah. So here's my father, me, my brother, Nikki, and this guy, Frankie, are literally digging to get a foundation made to put a building up. Now, my father can do everything. He's an electrician. He's a carpenter. He can do plumbing. He can do, lay tile. You know, the only thing he can't do is lay a foundation, which he had to get someone to come in and do it. So here we are, four people building the building. So when someone says the business was built from the ground up, it was literally built from the ground up. And my father kept running and running and running, and there was no money, so we would build, stop, he would go to work. Whatever he'd do, driving trucks, whatever he had, we'd go to work, save up money, come back, build more. What, so what were you doing when, when you guys were building? Like, did you have to no, be I was, told? No, I was staying, you know, just helping where I could at Frankie's or doing whatever I had. But I was living with my mother and father and my kids, so yeah. I really didn't have any bills. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was yeah. like, we were all living together, my brother, all of us. And so we built a little, and I remember it was sunny, hot, summertime. My father had been going seven days straight, nonstop, and a lunch truck would pull up, and we would go to eat. And I heard this very faint cry. I heard, Anthony, Anthony, Anthony. I'm like, what is that? And I knew it was coming from the back of the building. And I go in the back and my father's on the ground. And he don't look, looks horrible. And I remember picking him up, screaming to start the truck. To get him, I didn't know what was wrong with him. Get him in the hospital. And I remember putting him in the truck. I was flying, blowing red lights to get him. And we took him to, I think it was Methodist. And I ran in. I said, my father's in the truck. There's something wrong with him. I don't know. And they came out and his blood pressure was like, he was literally a second away from a, a massive stroke. And he was in the hospital for quite a while and everything got held up. And then he came back out and we started building it, but he almost died. I mean, it literally almost killed him. Was there, was there any consideration to, to stop doing that? 
<laughs> no, no, because what do we do then? Right. Like my father never liked working for anyone. He did it when he was younger and he hated it. He can only be his own boss. So he was not going to go back to work and work for someone. But I remember we finished building it. But one day in particular, he had ordered like a, 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 a truckload of cement. It was 110 degrees out in August. And if you know anything about cement, once you lay it in that kind of heat, it hardens almost. And I remember him smoothing out everything. I don't know what I'm doing. I never did cement. But I was actually not bad at it because I'm Italian and I guess laying cement is in our DNA somewhere. <laughs> right. I have no idea. <laughs> so he finished it and he asked me to hand him the trowel and I walked into the <laughs> cement that he just laid. And I remember him throwing it up, calling me every name under the sun, which he had a right to. <laughs> and finally we opened. Well, we're done. And I remember the night before we opened, we had, I think he had $1,500 to his name. And it was in the draw. It was in the cash register. Yeah. Draw. The draw. Yeah. Draw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> draw. I remember we were going to open up the next day and he said to me, um, everything I've got is in this place. I can't start again. Like this can't fail or I'm done. And I remember when we were building, you know, I was his dreamer my whole life. I'm like, we're gonna have a hundred of these stores. And he'd be like, just shut up and eat. Try worry about working on the one store. I've been a hundred stores already. You're, I got a hundred stores. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, we're gonna be international. We're gonna, I'm gonna take this. <laughs> and we, you know, he's like, how about just grab a spatula and do some actual work. And, and then we open. And I remember people came. My favorite story of when we opened was people come to the window. My father would be like, get their name. Don't just give them a number, get a name. Because we didn't have any... You know, we would write everything down yeah. on paper. We had a regular cash register. And I remember the first time doing that, you know, working with him. Like, hey, you doing? He's like, good. And now, a thing that everyone knows now, because I've said it so much, when we opened, we did not have cheesesteaks. We did not serve cheesesteaks. What did you serve? What was the menu? We, it was pork and chicken cutlets. Wow. And I think he did hoagies. I'm not 100% sure about hoagies. But it was pork and chicken cutlets, roast beef. Not steaks, because there were so many steak places, and he didn't want to compete. Right. But we worked it. Me, my father, my brother, Nick, the kid that I had to fight with yeah. back in the day, he worked there. Wow. And, <laughs> and, you know, we were doing, I remember I used to wear this really long, I had this long feather earring, like, you know, I was my father's worst nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there was a lot of tension between me and my father. There were many classic battles between me and my dad. We were just two completely different people, and we were almost the same person at the same time. Yeah. That's why you know, he's very hard-headed. I was very hard-headed. He's very stubborn. I was stubborn. And my brother, Nicky, was just different than me. Like, you know, he, you know, if my father said, you know, this is purple, and it was red, he'd go, okay, it's purple. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not putting him down. You know, he, you know, he, he was a good son. He really was. I was trouble. Yeah. Always trouble. Did you? So in those early days, did you guys, did you have any chemistry when you were working together, getting the names, working the well, register? It, we had a different, like I was good at speaking with people. Like I always looked at myself, you know, my father's a worker. Yeah. My brother's a worker. Now I worked, I did the grill. Like there's not a spot in the position I can't do. But my, you know, I kept thinking, well, we need people to come here 
And I was good at speaking with people. Mm-hmm. And I would do these crazy things and they allowed me to do it. I would go to radio station, I'd bring food. I would hound them, I would do interviews. I'd be like, check over here. People be driving down the street, I'm like, you come to Tony Luke's? Who's Tony Luke? you gotta come. And then everything changed in 1994 because Philly Magazine voted us not only the best cheesesteak in Philly, but the best roast pork sandwich in Philly. So it was two. In the same, wow. And business just doubled. And it opened the door for me to be me. Well, at at what point did you start serving cheesesteaks? Like, was there oh, high- Oh, six months after. High demand, like people were saying, we like, did, was that a conversation? Everybody that, that came, I'm glad you brought that up. Everybody that came to the window, we didn't serve cheesesteaks. So everybody would come to the window and we'd be like, we don't want to put it. And they'd go, yeah, we need cheesesteak. We don't serve cheesesteaks. What do you mean you don't serve cheesesteaks? How can you be a store in Philly serving sandwiches? <laughs> you don't serve cheesesteaks. So we put it on and we cut our own ribeye. And I remember if we were going to do it, we were going to do it right. And yeah. we did it thin. We did it a little differently. We cooked it a little slower, a little longer. We made every sandwich to order. And then I remember thinking, we need to start weighing things. And I, I, I literally created this scale where... We would put the pork in. It was kind of a basket. I had a guy weld it where the juice would go in. It was stainless steel. And and then I thought in my head, you know, I'm like, you know, if you're doing 15,000 sandwiches a week and where a sandwich is supposed to be seven ounces, you're giving nine and ten. Yeah. I remember going to my father going, I should go home now and like just collect a paycheck till the day I die because you add three ounces times 10,000 per week, there's my salary and some forever and ever. You know, I remember, yeah, yeah, right. You know, and I thought, you know, that's what I'm good at. I can make a steak with anyone. And, but what I was good at is those kind of things. It's like kind of streamlining things and trying to figure out who our audience was, doing interviews, doing stuff like that. And then I came up with this idea. And do you remember Prism? I went to them and I said, I want to do a commercial. I want to do a food commercial for local cable. What's prison? It was a cable. Oh, okay. okay. And I walked in and they said, okay, no problem. And they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I'm like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. They're like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, I want to direct it. I don't want you to direct it. They're like, no, you don't direct. We have direct. Yeah. yeah. You can have him. Yeah. You'll pay. I'll pay him. He ain't going to do anything. He'll just, yeah. not. <laughs> I'm like, well, we're gonna get a shot of the food. I'm like, yeah, now we're gonna we're not gonna show any food. And the guy said, What do you mean not gonna show any food? We're not gonna show any food, we're not gonna show any making of the food, we're not gonna show the inside, we're not gonna do any of those things. Well, what are we doing? We're gonna do a jailbreak with two convicts, and he's gotta break out of prison because he's gotta have a Tony Luke steak, and then his son's gonna and literally they said, We don't wanna take your money for, I'm like, this is what I wanna do. I'll pay the money. And I did jailbreak and I knew that the whole concept of me with business was there's a thousand cheesesteak places in Philadelphia right? and no one in how many decades could ever break the Holy Trinity. There was a Holy Trinity and that was Pat's, Geno's and Jim's. That was the Holy Trinity and no one broke it. I don't care how many steak shops were in the city. What you knew, there were only three steak shops. Yep. That anyone in the world knew about that was Pat's, Geno's, and Jim's. And that was it. So I thought, if I'm going to break into this crew, if there's going to be a fourth. You got to make some moves. Then I got to do something different. And I thought, what should I do? I want people to talk about Tony Luke's 
when they're not hungry. I want people to talk about Tony Luke's because it's a topic of conversation. So how do I do that? And I thought the commercials. And I did these commercials that were ridiculous. They were outrageous. They had nothing to do with food. <laughs> and I'm sure there were some people that absolutely loved them. And other people thought, Tony's the biggest jerk, the biggest idiot I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> Why am I watching this stupid crap? But then they would go to work and say, did you see that dump? Who's Tony Luke's? I don't, I don't even know what it is. Is it a sandwich? I have no idea. They're on cable and the guy's a moron and he runs around like an idiot. <laughs> but... But they were talking about They you. were talking about me. And subconsciously, in my mind, it was like, the more they said the name Tony Luke's, Tony Luke's, Tony Luke's, Tony Luke's, the more they'd be curious about, well, I'm going to go. Because I thought, if I get you there, I got you. You'll win. You just got to get them through the door. You. And my father and my brother never, on like, the, never to them, it was just a, a huge waste of time and energy and money. And that's where the, the divide started. So then... What happened was people were recognizing me more and more. So the commercials, commercials were working. And then people would come and be like, oh, there's Tony Luke. There's Tony Luke. There's Tony Luke. I started to do more stuff. Then I started doing interviews. And then more things were happening. And more radio spots were happening. And then we got a call from the Food Network about doing a TV series for them. And I'm like, well, what's the series? And they were like, well, it'll be about food. And they were very vague about it. So I went to my father and my brother, and I said, look, Food Network wants to do it. And they were like, well, I'm not doing it. My father's like, I'm not. You know, my brother's like, I'm, I don't go in front of the camera. Like, I'm not doing any of that. I'm like, well, I'm doing it. And, you know, we're filming the show, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes Bobby Flay. And I thought to myself, oh, Bobby, they must have told Bobby, I'm, I'm doing a pilot for the Food Network. And, you know, he's here to support me. That's what I'm thinking. And he walks over and he goes, hey, Tony, I'm like, Bobby. I'm like, if you watch the show, I'm really surprised. I'm like, Bobby. And he goes, Tony, you ready to do a throwdown? I'm like, throwdown? A, a, a what? And he's like, throwdown, me and you, cheesesteaks right now. And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm stricken with this terror. If I lose a throwdown to Bobby Flay, who's from New York, yeah, all of the work that I have done in the last five years or six years, whatever it was, to build the name Tony Luce yeah. is now completely flushed down the toilet if I lose. Yeah. So we go, we battle. My son Tony was probably one of the best grill guys I've ever seen in my entire life, ever, anywhere. Wow. And he's running stakes, I'm running stakes, and Bobby's trying to keep up, and it, they showed it a million times. And I beat Bobby. And you have no idea the sigh of relief when right. I beat him. Because, he must have been so... And he said something that was kind of cool. He said, you know, people think it's easy to make a cheesesteak. It's just a grill and some meat and a spatula. You put some cheese on it, you put it in a roll. He said, but doing this throwdown, I realized that there's so much to consider the temperature, the cut of the meat, how it's used, when you turn it, what kind of roll you use, what the texture of the roll. There's all of these intricacies that go into making a cheesesteak that most people have no clue on. He said, which distinguishes one place from another. Yeah. And I had always said in every interview I ever did, even when we won Best of Philly, they were like, why is your cheesesteak the best in Philadelphia? In every interview I've ever done, I have never claimed to be the best. I always said, Tony Luke's, we do the best that we can. And we hope that most people will like it. But am I better than Pat's? No. Am I better than Gino's? No. I'm different. 
Just like Pat's is different than Gino's. Yeah. And Gino's different than Pat's and different than Jim's. And Steve Prince's steaks. And I get very annoyed when, you know, someone will say or write, you know, they'll meet me and go, oh, you know, Tony Luke's is the greatest, you know, but, you know, Pat's and Gino's suck. And I'd go, they don't suck. They don't. If there's no Frank Oliveri, Harry and Pat Oliveri, if, if there's no Pat's, there's no Tony Luke's. And there's no Geno's and there's no Jim's had it not been for that. But that's where the divide, when I did the show, then I did more of Food Network shows. And then the popularity of Tony Luke's grew and grew. And then there were lines literally down the block. And, you know, we went to, you know, we had like 15 employees, you know, just in a shift. And we started to bake our own bread and, and life was Good. Yeah, as this was blowing up, were you? It was good. It was, I was, you know, Philly Magazine once, twice, Philadelphia Magazine Hall of Fame. And then we won GQ's Golden Dish Award for the best roast pork in the world. Not in the in the world. They went to Spain. They went to Italy. We won best roast pork in the world. And people were coming from everywhere. And I met all these people. And then what happened was my face became the face of Tony Luke's. Now, the three of us started it. The three of us worked it, my father, my brother, and myself. But they didn't really want the limelight. He never did. You know, my brother's like, I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to do it. So I did it. And that was where I was comfortable. I will put myself up in marketing against anyone you will bring to me. I literally had one guy say to me, you are literally the P.T. Barnum <laughs> of this era. Like, yeah. And, you know, to think about, to take a sandwich shop in an out-of-way place that no one would go to at that time, to literally being an international name and becoming a brand. And when I do speak to people in business, I say to them, if you got a restaurant or whatever it is, and it's really well and it's very famous, you have to make a call. You have to either be that famous restaurant or a brand, but it, it's very difficult to be both. Because, Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, because when you have a restaurant, you're there, you're in control. If you have two restaurants, uh, maybe another family member, but you can jump back and forth. Three restaurants, control gets a little bit harder. When you start getting into 20 and 30 places, the quality is a job. Like it becomes a job to keep the quality up because you're not at every place. Yeah. And I wanted to franchise. Like I wanted to have a thousand stores. I wanted, and then that's where the, my father and my brother did not. And I remember going to my father and saying, look, let me run with it. I'll start a new company. You guys will get a percentage of it. And we'll open up all these stores. And we'll have our store, which is the Front Street store, which is the original store. And then I will do all the legwork. I will go get the investors. I will do all that stuff. And I will build a brand and we'll share in that brand. Yeah. And he said, okay. Yeah, it was fine because, you know, I was getting, and then I met Ray Rustelli. Mm. And then my whole world changed meeting Ray. And we talked and I shook his hand and he said, I'll invest in the company. And on a handshake, we got started. Wow. And it was a lot of work and, it, you know, building the brand and getting it done. And, you know, and then we, it failed and then it worked and it, 
you know, you make mistakes. You open up a store, it fails. Well, this one, it fails. Well, this one. And you learn from every mistake. And Ray was fine. He was like, okay, let's go. Let's try. We learned. We'll try this. We learned. We'll try. And then things really started to go well, like really well. It was unbelievable. And then I got called to co-host a series on Spike TV yeah. called Frankenfood. And I remember, you know, there's my picture and Josh right next to the Lion King in Times Square, you know, and I toured with Daryl Hall and there's my name playing the Beacon Theater on Broadway. Wow. And, and when you see that, you see your name there, you see your face. What do you, what, what's going through your head? Well, with, with the Times Square thing, it was good and it was bad. It led to another life of Tony Luke Jr. Yeah. And it was, um, it was a very self-centered, egotistical, you know, you, you, you make the mistake of believing what people write about you. Mm. You're on a billboard in Times Square. You're on a national TV show. And humility takes kind of a back seat. And people, you know, I got flown everywhere first class and driven everywhere first class. I had people that did makeup. I had people that did my wardrobe. I, and you get caught up in this unreal life because it is unreal it's mm. not real and you start losing sight of the things that are really important in life everywhere i went people would come and i remember being at the store and i was upstairs with my dad and i i can see it from his perspective now See, the problem was I never had a real relationship with my father. And he never was proud of me. Like, never. You know, because I didn't work with my hands. Right. And... It sounds like he wouldn't really understand or, or just doesn't buy no, into... No, he was not a stupid, very intelligent man, my dad. Really. But he didn't understand... Like, he thought all of that was crap. Like, Right, it didn't respect it as much as working right, with your hands. Right, So what I did was, like, he couldn't fathom how I could be making this kind of money to go on a TV show, to be funny with food. Like you, you make money with your hands. You're a plumber. You're, yeah, yeah, you make stuff. Yeah, you, you know, what do you do? That's not work. That's playtime. And you're making money. And I, I remember I was up in his office and one of the employees came up and said, there's a bunch of people downstairs. I want to take a picture with Tony. Um, what do you want me to tell them? And I said, I'll be right down. And he looked at me and he said, I don't get it. And I'm like, you don't get what? And he was like, what have you ever done in your life that someone should want to take a picture with you? And then I realized there was this there was a really bad disconnect. And, and, and look, let me tell you something. I blame myself for the disconnect because I, I worshipped my father. And I guess all children want their parents' approval. And my dad was, as much as we fought, he was the man I looked up to. He mm -hmm. was the one I wanted to make proud. And I knew that I couldn't. But then what I tried to do to overcompensate, which I believe drove my father and my brother further away from me, was in 
in this urgency of making my father proud of me and this desperation, I would try to say, look what I've done. Like, hey, dad, I just did a movie with uh, Dennis Hopper and Giovanni Ribisi. You know what I mean? I just, you know, all of his friends would be like, you know, your son's in a, you know, they're just home in a movie. You know, I'd be like, yeah. What I didn't, I, and I, again, I can't speak for my dad. But I think what I wind up doing was in my desperation for his approval, it came off braggadocious right. and cocky. So when you were saying, hey, dad, look what I've done, it felt like, like you hey, were saying, hey, look at this. And look, you did, you know what I mean? Yeah, look what I did. Right. I remember an incident where, you know, they wanted to take a picture and I guess my brother showed them to my father and they were like, no, Tony Luke, like I want to take a picture with him. You know, my brother was like, that is Tony Luke. He's like, no, no, the guy on TV. And I know that that bothered him. There started to build, I guess, an inner resentment. Yeah. You know, and I remember being at my brother's and there'd be comments like, well, how come you're on TV and your brother's not? I, I didn't think much of it then because my brother didn't want to do it. Right. Like he, he didn't want to be on TV. Right. That wasn't what he wanted to do. And But I think... As the business got bigger and bigger, the divide between us got bigger, but I didn't know that. Like, I kind of was oblivious to it, but it was getting bigger and bigger, and my father was getting more and more distant, and and then everything they felt came out, and it was... Was it a surprise? To me, it shouldn't have been, but it was, and, you know, to know how they really felt. You know, you never see your part in it, but I had a big part in the way they felt. But I mean, in the end, it just went down to what I did was not what they believed had any value. The value was only in, in the making and the food. So we never were going to see eye to eye on that. And you talk to people and you get both sides. So, uh, and then people kind of, you know, then when I got hit with the lawsuit, I had no idea. And then my father went on television and then I... Yeah, I told my side, he told his side, and then people took sides. People wouldn't talk to me. Um, friends of my dad wouldn't talk to me anymore. Uncles wouldn't talk to me anymore. And there were people who would talk to me, wouldn't talk to him. And it was horrible. And, and I, I really, I labored over it because I, I love him, and I love my brother, and I still do. And... Uh, I hate that all that went down. And, uh, you know, my business was took a hit. And I remember telling Maria, I get hit every day, Maria, and I I don't know why. Like, I'm, I'm strong, but I'm, my knees are buckling. And uh, she said to me, God's preparing you for something. I just don't know what it is. And I'm like, well, what could it be? Show canceled, job, family split apart, no money coming in. I mean, what else can happen? And then I got the phone call that my son died. <sighs> and now we come to the most recent incarnation of Tony Luke Jr., the anti-addiction stigma activist. 
Now, when I was 12 years old, I lost my godfather to a heroin overdose. The story of the day I lost him is eerily similar to the story you're about to hear from Tony, and hearing it definitely brought back some difficult feelings for me. So please keep that in mind as you or those with you listen forward. This story may be a trigger to those who have also experienced such trauma. I was just starting to understand addiction. Just starting, because I didn't. You know, I had a drug problem as a kid, but it was a drug problem. Yeah. And I thought, well, I stopped. One day I did all kinds of drugs. I had mixed, mixed PCP and Quaaludes and cocaine, crystal meth, Jack Daniels. Um, uh, I did a Dizoxin. I didn't overdose where they had to bring me back, but I, I got rushed to the hospital. My father actually took me to the hospital. And, you know, he was furious. I was young at the time. Yeah. Do you remember around where you're a teenager? Yeah, I was a teenager. And, you know, the doctor told my father I smoked marijuana for the first time, and I kind of freaked out. My father really didn't believe it, but yeah. he really didn't have a choice because yeah. you know, he would have killed me. I remember saying to him, if you hit me now, I'll die. And I stopped. Just like that. Yeah, yeah, because I had a drug problem. Right. And I didn't learn later on, which is when I speak now, I try to explain to people that someone with a drug problem and someone suffering from addiction are two completely different people. They are not the same people. Tony had very low self-esteem, suffered from depression a lot, which is why he suffered from addiction. When the rehab, first time I forced him in, the second time he wanted to go, he fell, Percocets, Oxycontin, but not heroin. Because to be honest, he always worked. He could afford to go on the street and buy Oxycontin. And, you know, he's not someone that's not doing an Oxycontin a day. It's someone doing, you know, 12 Oxycontin a day, 15 Oxycontin a day at $35 a pill. So he's losing his house. Every penny he makes is going towards his uh, addiction. And I would yell at him and we'd fight <clears throat> that he couldn't just stop. What is wrong with you? Because I just didn't, I didn't know anything about addiction. I didn't. And before he died, I got to know it. And he came to me and he said, what do I do, dad? And I said, you gotta get a job, Tony. I, I, I don't, I'm in a lawsuit. I can't give you with me. I don't have it. There's all my stores are franchised. I don't own any of those stores. People go, we got 27 stores. No, they're all franchised. I don't own them. So I can't put someone in a store. Like I can't walk in there. They're franchised. So I said to him, got to apply for work. Because all he ever did was work for my dad or me. So he applied. He applied. And I said, Tony, you could do it. You're great in the kitchen. Like, you know as much as I do, if not more. Like, you can design it. He was great at designing kitchen. Like, any restaurant would be happy to have you as designer opening. And he applies to this company that's building. He gets goes in for an interview. He gets accepted. Not only does he get accepted, he gets a job making more than he was making before. So... He's proud of himself. Now, he's clean a year at this point. Because the job, everything, it, he was really working at it. 
He's so proud to come over to me and every day show me an email. Dad, look, look, because he didn't believe in himself. Look, look what they said about my work. And it would be an email and it would be, you know, outstanding work today, Tony. Unbelievable. And then he comes to me and I've never seen him so happy in his entire life. And he came to me and, and he said, they're going to give me my own store. Like, look at the email that I'm going to head the brand new store that they're opening. And I said, I told you. And he's like, I, I can't believe it. I, I, I can't. Because when you suffer from addiction, you've done a lot of things and you feel that you can never come back from that, that no one will ever believe in you again. And it was his first day and they were going in for training and he called me hysterical, crying. I'm like, what's, what happened? And he said, I got fired. I'm like, what do you mean he got fired? I walked in, they called me into the office and said that they don't think that I'm the right fit. And I was like, what are you talking about? You offered me the store. Like, have I not been doing it? Yeah, it, it just doesn't work. We're sorry. We don't really think you can get what we need at this time. And we got to let you go. And when I tell you, it literally was the nail in his coffin. And then he went right back to you. Like it was, it was the affirmation yeah. that you suck. And, and he said, I don't get it. And then I went online, which in the two months that they trained him, they failed to do, whether they just didn't get to it or it was the last thing to do. And I typed in his name uh. and the first thing that popped up was for him getting arrested at Walmart on drug charges. And I know for a fact that they Googled him, saw that he had an addiction problem and that he had robbed from the store and they fired him. Wow. They couldn't tell him that and it crushed him. Absolutely. To this day, I will never eat in one of those locations to this day. He was devastated. And he slipped back and I found a way to acquire the store that we have now, the one that I'm, the only one that the brand owns, which is in Sicklerville, New Jersey. Uh -huh. That's the store I'm at every day. He said, I've really been humbled, Dad. I said, Tony, it's going to take time for people to, but we got this, Dad. I, I got you. And he had no health insurance. He had been in a car accident the year prior, and he got hurt pretty bad. And he couldn't take pain meds. He was on like a muscle relaxer, and he was on antidepressants because he was dealing with depression. But now he had no health insurance. So, and I remember he was in so much pain as he was working. I said to him, Tony, if I got to sell a kidney, I'm getting you health insurance. Like I, at this point I'm broke. I'm literally, I mean, I'm not destitute, but I mean, I have not, I'm, I'm, I'm my legal bills are astronomical. I, I can't, I can I can't keep anything. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to rebuild what was, you know, the lawsuit damaged a lot of stuff on both sides. And, uh, so I said, then whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. This is a Sunday. He's mopping the floor and I can hear him moaning. And I look at, I said, Tony, leave it. I'll finish it. No, dad, I got it. I got it. I got it. No, 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 no. 
Leave it. Go home. I hugged him and I kissed him. And we were closed on Monday. We opened again on Tuesday. And then Monday morning came. I got up early. And it was Citizens Bank Park. I had to be there, take pictures, because we're open at the ballpark again. So I had to come and hand out sandwiches, you know, and then do the The PR stuff. The PR stuff. And uh, it was 8 o'clock in the morning. I said, you know, I'm going to give him a call. And I'm going to tell him that how amazingly proud I am of him and that I want to apologize for not getting it before. But I really understand what I'm, I'm really starting to understand what addiction is. And I'm so proud that you're bouncing back. And uh, I thought, you know what? He worked so late on Sunday and so hard. I'll let him sleep. I'll call him later. And in a day, and I got to be at the ballpark. So I take an Uber to Citizens Bank Park because I don't want to deal with the parking. And it was like in the basement, like of the Citizens Bank Park. It wasn't, and it, you know, these steps going down and I had a table set up and my phone rang and it was my son, Michael. And I had all this food on the table. And I said, give me one second. Cause when my kid calls, I want to, and I heard that it, 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 and it was all broken up, but he was crying. And I'm like, why is he crying? Like, what, what, what he cry? And all I heard was dead, dead. I'm like, dead, dead. Who died? Who? So then I can't hear him. So I run up the steps to go outside. And as I get almost to the top of the steps, my phone falls. And I'm watching it slam down every step. And I'm thinking, I broke the phone. And I ran down. I grabbed the phone. I'm like, Michael. And I hear you know, and I'm like, oh, so, and I remember literally busting out the doors and went, Michael, it's dad, he goes, Michael, who died? What, what happened? And he said to me, Stacy called, Tony's dead. <laughs> and I, I remember I just fell. And I screamed. <laughs> he must have been in so much pain. I didn't have any money. And I had no health insurance. So he went and picked up a bag of heroin. And he overdosed. It was unimaginable to me that that would, that would be part of my life. And then that was the incarnation of another life. A different Tony. And is that the Tony I'm talking to? Yeah. I took two weeks off. I went back to the store. It wasn't long after that, which I didn't realize some people take a year. Like I literally I was gonna say I, I went that's right, it. Yeah. And it was a couple weeks and and I was sitting at a table. And an elderly gentleman came in. He hesitantly walked up to me. And he said, Tony. And I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, I just want to tell you that I'm very sorry about you losing your son. Because the paper just said, and the news was all over it, and it just said Tony's son passed away. It didn't say how he passed away. It just said he passed away. And... Uh, he said, do you mind if I asked you how he died? Was it cancer? And I said, no, he, d- he died of a heroin overdose. And he got real angry. And he said, damn it. 
see what these kids do, how they destroy your life, what they do. And I just thought, wow, that is the way my son was looked at every single day of his addiction. And it was like, I didn't get mad at the guy. I really didn't because he didn't get it. I hadn't gotten it. And that's when I knew what ultimately killed my son was the stigma. He really believed in his mind like every person suffering from addiction believes that his family would be better off if he died or she died because they look at themselves as a huge burden because most people don't understand it. And even when you do understand it, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. You know, it's one thing to be suffering from addiction. It's another thing to be a family that has someone suffering from addiction because you have no control. You know, you are completely helpless to watch someone that you love more than life itself just slowly kill themselves and, and, and slowly just wither away into someone you don't even recognize. And you have to just stand by and watch it because the system is not set up to help them. The system is set up to help people with drug problems. It is not set up to help anyone that suffers from addiction. It's a spinning wheel of recovery centers over and over again. You know, and then the people say to me, well, they relapse over and over again. They, like there's some, some foreign creature, they relapse over and over again. And they have a name, you know, and they were loved and... They're not a number. They're human beings who suffer from a mental health problem. You know, when you drive by that person who's homeless or you drive by that person that's struggling, you know, try not to look at them with disgust and understand that that's a human being that's suffering. You wouldn't do that to someone who was crippled or suffering from cancer. So don't do it to them. And I tell everyone suffering from addiction, you really are not a lost cause. You really are loved. And I can tell you for an absolute fact that your family is not better off if you died. They are not. And just make an effort to understand it more because it, it affects everyone. It touches every single life. So it's been a couple years. You've made it your mission to impact the, the stigma, to make the stigma go away. Has there been anything else that has sort of helped you carry through? Have you returned to music? Music was the catalyst for saving my life. All those years I was writing, I would never know what I was playing. I would just play notes. And then when Tony had passed, a few months went by and a friend of mine brought me a keyboard. So I looked at the piano, at the keyboard, 
And I thought, you're going to have to learn how to play. Because I want to write, only it's different now. If you listen to a lot of my old stuff and then listen to my stuff today, it's very different. I'm not the same person I was. You know, I used to say, why would God give me the gift of music? Why would God give me this? Why would he let me hear music in my head, melodies and arrangements in my head? Why would he give me this gift and then never allow me to use it? Because I got record deals. I lost them, not for what I did. I got this, I got that. I lost it, not because of the music. So why give me the gift? And I, and I realized, same thing with Tony Luke's. Why Tony Luke's? I realized that like everything else in life, I stopped driving the bus. And I let God drive. And if I wasn't Tony Luke Jr. And my son died, who would have called me up for an interview? How many people die every day? No one. So I realized maybe this is why God gave you the gift, Tony. Maybe the plan all along wasn't for you to be the cheesesteak guy or the singer-songwriter then. Maybe all of that was school. Maybe all of it led up to this because this is why you were born. This is why you were given that gift. Music talks to everyone. It's energy. It fills the room. You can listen to a song and you could feel very depressed because that it, it, it just exudes this negative, this sorrow. It, it's an energy. It, it, it goes through you or you could want to dance and feel happy. And I knew, how do I use the gifts that God gave me to make people understand addiction? And I thought, okay, what did you want to say to Tony that morning that you didn't call him? And I was listening through songs and I was driving and a Bob Dylan song came on called Make You Feel My Love. And I just burst out crying. And I said, that's what I wanted to say to him. I came back and I worked with an amazing, amazing, amazing man named Dan Morrow. He's an incredible musician and an amazing songwriter. And I said, Dan, I want to do this song, but I don't play keys well enough to do it. I'm just learning how to play. And I need help with this. And he came in and he played the guitar and he played the keys. And we recorded this song, Make You Feel My Love. And I thought I'm going to put it up on iTunes. And every single penny that it makes, other than the money that has to go to Bob Dylan, because right. he wrote it, right. I'm not taking any of the money. So I went online. I said, look, please download the song. If you like it, download it. You'll be doing a good thing. And it started to get some downloads. It didn't make a lot of money, but it got some downloads. I finished the track that, I, that was done with an amazing gentleman named Joe Niccolo, who is nine Grammys, 30 million, you know, he's done everyone, Billy Joel. And here's the weird thing. I called Joe and I said, Joe, I've been doing a lot of writing again, because most people just know me as Sandwich. And he said the greatest thing to me. 
he called me back. He goes, Tony, how are you? And I said, I'm good. He goes, listen, let me be, let me be straight with you. Everyone thinks they can write music. Most people can't. He said, now, I'm not saying that you can't write. He said, if you have something, send it to me. He said, I just, I want to be straight with you. Because everyone believes that everything, you know, but, you know, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to string you along, Tony. If you got something you want to. So I said, no, Joe, I was in this a long time. My skin is thicker than a shark's. I'm good. And I, I emailed him a, a track that I wrote called Walk Away. And uh, he calls me back. He's like, come to the studio. We have to put this down. Mm. I'm like, does that get your approval? Come to the studio. We'll put it down. <laughs> Shut up. Why aren't you here? Yeah. <laughs> Now, here's where it gets really freaky. The song that I released is Make You Feel My Love. So we're sitting down, and I said to him, I got to tell you, I've met a lot of people in my life, but there's only one person, two, that if I met, I would literally be... And I've worked with Dennis Hopper and... I've worked with everyone. John Travolta, I just did a film with when I did got you. I've worked with that. John was an idol of mine. I mean, I was, yeah, he was my idol for, oh, since I was a kid. Yeah. The reason I started music, my writing style, everything I love, why I love the piano itself, why I never learned before, which is ridiculous. Billy Joel is the reason I did music and he looked at me and he said, you know, v Billy Joel's version of make you feel my love, the river of dreams album. I produced that album. We have now collaborated as me and him are going to put together an amazing album to help with the awareness of addiction a show after that, we're going to, there's going to be songs. There's going to be artists on this album. It's going to be unbelievable. Um, I am more excited than you could ever know. Joe's got nine Grammys under his belt and I have a child that is in here. I, like, I felt like God was saying, this is what I trained you for. This is what your whole life was about. And now I'm giving you Joe. To, you know, and also Joe brings the ability to bring in artists that I could never. And then, you know, it, it brings me the opportunity to speak and just drives the message of addiction and the, the way it needs to be changed. I am so grateful that the word is getting out. Yeah. And I always say, it don't, don't have to be me. Please go out there. If anything I said resonates with anyone, go out there. Every voice, every voice is important. Everything that you do is important. I told you, I get up and I speak to people. They're, the heroes are the people that are on the streets every day. The heroes are those people that are out there on their own time given AIDS test and, and doing everything they could and bring people in and, and bringing them into their homes and, and getting them into recovery centers and, and making life. That's the hero. 
And it's sad. It saddens me that they don't know, the world doesn't know their name. You know, because that's, that's, that's who's making a difference. You know, they're not getting paid. And they're out there every day because they were in it. And they're giving back and they're making a difference. And, and I can never say enough about all the people, the men and women, kids and families that every day make a difference to make someone's life better because you are truly the richest person in the world. And that's not me just being clichéic. That's the truth. I'd rather be that person than a billionaire any day of the week. And that is from my heart, and that's the God's honest truth. I could tell you in my lifetime, I have experienced the greatest highs any human being could experience. Movies, TV, music, billboards, Times Square, national television, a business, a chain, a brand, money. And I've experienced the worst tragedies that a human being can go through. And I'm still standing. And I'll be standing until God says, the journey's over, come home. For more on Tony Luke Jr. and his mission, you can check out the show notes or head to podphillywho.com forward slash Tony. If you like the show, be sure you're subscribed and leave us a rating. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at podphillywho. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Kevin Schmidlin, with associate production by Angela Gervasi and Bryce LaBelle, Music by Lee Rosevere, artwork by Lauren Carhart, and a very special thanks to Bob Moore. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time. <laughs>